I know on Sunday night that might have been a little unusual to have a solo, but uh, it was purposeful. And thank you, Philip. Thank you for all those that made that happen because that last refrain or that repeated refrain, you can have all the world, but give me Jesus, is before us tonight. As we look at Numbers chapter 22, my question for you is, can you say that with integrity? Can you say, you can have all the world, you can have its beauty, its wonder, all the shiny, bright things of this world, but what you can't take from me is Jesus. The question for us tonight is, how important is Jesus to you? We come to Numbers chapter 22, a very interesting passage, a passage maybe that you've read before. You've probably read it if you've taught children. It's about Balaam and his donkey. It's a long passage, but I need to get through it. I need to read it because there's a lot in here that we need to cover tonight. And so bear with me as I read this whole chapter. This is Numbers chapter 22. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from this land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed." And he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed departed with the fees of divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent, me, sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. It covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with him, with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. And once again, Balak sent, uh, sent princes more in number and more in honorable than these, more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, 
If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way, of his, in the way as his adversary. So now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled. And he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made me a fool. You've made me look like a fool. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the, and the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me three times, these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Then Balak heard that Balaam had come, and he went out and, and met him at the, at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power on my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirath Hudza. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Barmoth, uh, Barmoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, this is indeed your word, and there is a lot here. And I pray by your grace you would simplify it for us. Open our eyes to see the truth. Guide us through this passage for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This is a difficult passage in a lot of ways. As you read it, you heard me read it, we see this prophet of God, seemingly in relationship with God. And here is this pagan king that comes and says, I want you to come and I want you to curse his people for me. And Balaam talks to the Lord, Yahweh. 
And God says, you will not go. And so Balaam goes and tells these princes, these honorable people, I cannot go. And Balak will not receive no for an answer. And so he sends more money and more princes to him and says, no, I need you to come. And Balaam goes back to God and God says, no. And then God relents. God says, if, what does he say in verse uh, 20? If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. So it seems that, that God is allowing him to go. If these men have come, rise with them and go. And the very next verse, it says God's anger kindled against Balaam. How is that? God said, it's okay, go. And in the very next verse, God is angry that he went. What is going on here? What's going on here, I believe, is that Balaam is intoxicated with the glories of this world. He's intoxicated. There's a tractor beam that is upon him that's sucking him into the glories of this world. What does it mean to be intoxicated? It means to be under the influence of something. So much so that you lose your mind. That you're enamored by it. That you can't take the eyes of your heart off of it. In 1998, Pixar's second movie came out called A Bug's Life. And maybe you've seen this. And there's a scene in this movie that's kind of a throwaway scene. It's a scene actually that is meant, I guess, for humor. We know that, that Flick, the little ant, has disrupted his colony by doing something. You can go watch the movie. I won't give it away from you. And so he, he leaves the colony and he goes to the bug city to find some people to help him. And on his way there, there's this one little scene. And maybe you remember it. The sun goes down and this bug city is under this trailer. The moon comes up and the stars come up and the brightness of the sky. And there, in the corner of your eye, is a bug zapper. And as he's walking toward Bug City, these two flies come up. And they're buzzing around, and one of the flies, named Harry, sees the bug zapper. And he zeroes in on it. And his friend says, no, Harry, don't look at the light. And he says, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. And then he gets electrocuted. And he falls to his death. It's kind of a throwaway scene, right? if you remember it. And then Flick goes on and the story goes on. But that's exactly what's happening here. The eyes that Balaam have are fixed upon the brightness and the shininess of the things of this world. And he can't take his eyes off of them. And he follows them ultimately to his despair, to leaving the Lord. He's intoxicated by the bright things and the shiny things of life. And we must reckon with that tonight as a community. We must think about what is in this world that's bright and shiny, that is a tractor being on our hearts, that we keep walking toward. And people around us are saying, no, no, no. But we can't stop because the brightness and the shininess, shininess of it has caught our attention. The world has presuppositions against the Lord. 
It ascribes weight and recognition and authority to some of us. And we must be aware how dangerous that can be and sinister as the evil one enters into to temptation and causes us to, to abandon God and His Word because we want these shiny things in life. Can you say, you can have all the world, but give me Jesus? Can you say that with integrity tonight? Moreover, we must also reckon with that there are evil forces in this world that are woven in and out of world's principles and presuppositions. And all they're doing is prowling around like roaring lions seeking to devour somebody. I love how Mark Sayers talks about spiritual warfare. You've been around me, you've, you've heard me talk about this, that it's not a frontal attack. Spiritual warfare is not like we're getting to a, a battlefield and we're walking with armor and we have our gun, and we have, we, we're, we're moving out to fight against the enemy. Well, no, he talks about spiritual warfare being more like wrestling. That the evil one is a master of jujitsu. He's a master of physics. And he knows how to use the momentum of your heart against you. That you run headlong into the shiny and the beautiful things of life. And before you know it, you're in a ditch. You're on your back. Think about Charlie Brown and Lucy. That great picture. He says, are you going to remove the football? No. Are you going to remove the football? No. And so he runs headlong in to kick that football. And what does she do? She removes the football. His momentum carries him through. And what happens? He ends up on his back. That is the picture of what spiritual warfare looks like. As we're tempted by the shiny and the pretty things of life, and we run headlong into them, and we end up in a ditch or on our back. There's three things I want us to see out of this passage. I want us to see the bait of intoxication, the fruit of intoxication, and ultimately, what do we do with it? What do we learn from Balaam? What is the bait of intoxication in this passage? What is the bait? It's something that lures us. You think about fishing. You bait your hook. You you. Throw the hook and you throw the bait in the water to lure the fish towards you. What is the bait of the intoxication here in Balaam, in the story of, of Balaam? Well, one is glory. It's glory. Look at verse 16. Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. How about verse 37? And Balak said to Balaam, Do I not send to you? Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Both words there, that word for honor means to be heavy, means to be weighty. It's the word for glory. Balak is saying, If you come and rescue us, if you come and curse these people, you will receive glory, you will receive worship. A whole nation will be at your fingertips, Balaam. He's tempted by honor and glory by another nation. This bait of glory is enticing. We all succumb to that at times. We want the glories of this world. We ultimately struggle to not want to be gods. We want people to worship us. We want to be honored. We want to be recognized. Norman Dale, the great coach in Hoosiers, is famous in saying this. You know, most people would kill to be treated like a god. 
just for a second. How profound and how true is that? We all want to be treated like gods. We all want the honor of this world. We want people to worship us, to ascribe praise to us. That really is the temptation here for Balaam. But what what greases the skids toward that for Balaam? If this is the massive bait that's in front of him that he is bit hard on, that causes God's anger to burn against him, what, what greases the skids toward that? And what greases the skids for us? Well, I think one thing is reputation. Balak, the king of Moab, is overwhelmed by fear. The nation of the Amorites have been overrun by Israel. They have uh, been eradicated. Look at verse 35 of chapter 31. And so they defeated him, speaking of the Amorites, and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left. And they possessed his land. Israelites had moved in. They had asked, can we just pass through your land peaceably? And they said no, and they went to battle with the Israelites, and the Israelites annihilated them. None were left. And Moab sees this, and they're terrified. Verse 3, and Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear. They're overwhelmed by the presence of the Israelites in their land. And so what happens? Moab the king has to come up with a remedy. What are we going to do? And he says to himself, who can help us? I know Balaam of Beor from Pethor. He can help us. Why does he go to Balaam? Why is it the first person he thinks of? It's because Balaam had a reputation, an international reputation of blessing people and cursing them. Verse 6, come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. How does Balak know that? It's because Balaam's reputation precedes him. He has a reputation. Now, why does he have an international reputation. Why does Balaam have that? Well, it's probably because God has spoken through him. He's in relationship. Balaam calls God Yahweh. And no doubt, in this relationship, God has prophesied through Balaam. Uh, Balak sends his elders and these honorable people to him with what? With fees of divination. What is that? What's a diviner? Well, it's basically a a modern-day tarot card reader, a palm reader. Basically, what, what God has done through his relationship with Balaam is allowed him to prophesy about things, to predict the future, to say something is coming. And he's created this reputation around him by God blessing him And God allowing him to prophesy about cursing and blessing nations. You see, this sense of reputation can can grease the skids toward our desire to be worshipped, our desire for glory. Now, is it good to have a good reputation? Absolutely. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and a favor is better than silver and gold. So yes, 
To have a good reputation is a good thing. But to have a reputation that's constantly being promoted, constantly being highlighted, constantly being reinforced, becomes a very tempting thing for our hearts. To believe things about ourselves that aren't true, that we're worthy, that we're bigger and more significant than we really are. And it becomes a stumbling block too. Stumbling block to us. But secondly, what's the, the, another thing that greases the skids for Balaam here? Well, it's the fact that he's desired. As you read this passage, the people of Moab are, are in need of somebody to come and rescue him. And not just anybody, but Balaam. We need you, Balaam, to come and do what you can only do. Balak is persistent. He does not take no for an answer. He sends all this money and all these people and all these promises to him. And God tells Balaam, tell them no. And he says no. And Balak says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Right? Nobody tells me no. I need you to come save my people. And so what does he do? He sends more people with more money back to Balaam to get him to come and to serve him and to save his people. He's desired. He's needed. And don't we all want to be needed? Don't you want to be desired? Don't you want somebody to tell you that I need you to to be with me? I need you to help me? It's good to be desired. Sure it is. Everybody wants to be desired. It's inhumane to be treated like human trash. The very heart of the gospel is that God desires to be in relationship with you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The very heartbeat of the gospel is that God desires to be with you, that God desires to rescue you, that God desires for you to know how much he loves you. And so, yes, it's okay to want to be desired. But when that desire for the world, when that desire looks like what we want from the world, and we hear the world tell us that we're special and no one else can do it, that you're the best. That's toxic at times. And it greases the skids toward this desire to be worshipped and glorified, desire to be glory itself. Pablo Escobar, don't think I've ever quoted him in a sermon, is famous in saying, everyone has a price. The important thing is to find out what it is. What do you mean by that? He means that people will do anything for a certain price. People can be bought, they can be leveraged, they can be manipulated, engineered for a certain price. They can, people's allegiances can be bought. Is he right? Go with me for a second. As you take the inventory of your life, what might the world, the flesh, and the devil say is your price? If they had a committee meeting in hell and we're discussing how they might gain your allegiance, force you to stumble in relationship with the God, what might they discuss? What might be the carrot that they dangle in front of you to get you to abandon God's word or to seek your own glory? Money? Comfort? If we just give him or them a good living, maybe some inherited money, kids in private schools, a healthy retirement, the ability to travel wherever they want to go, then, then, they're ours. That's how we can buy their allegiance. How about a reputation? If we just give him or her a certain status, a good name, 
a good reputation with important people in this city, with important people in the workplace, with important people at their school, their community, maybe. Maybe the important people at their church. If we give them that, then, then we can have their allegiance. How about education or intellectual ability? If we give people, if we let people comment about how smart they are and how impressive they are, and how much we need them in leadership positions, how much their knowledge is needed and superior to all others, if we give them that, maybe, then we can buy their allegiance. How about health and beauty? If we give them the body they want, the ability to turn heads in a room and have people comment on their fashion, their looks, or, or to question their age because they are apparent, of their appearance. Is that what they would say? As you think that, take the inventory of your own life, what is it that the evil one, the world, the flesh, and the devil can, devil can put out in front of you that you might grab hold on, that you might latch on? What is the bait for you? That's the bait of intoxication that we see here with Balaam. But what is the fruit of that? The fruit of intoxication. Being intoxicated by his own glory. His desire for glory. Well, it's a lack of wisdom. Look at verse 8. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back a word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men? Who are these people? Now, when God asks a question, it almost always is for other people. It's to benefit them or to confront them. Because not, God knows all things. God knows who these men are. He doesn't need Balaam to tell him. He's asking this question because Balaam is not asking himself that question. God is asking Balaam, who are these people? Do you not see the temptation Balaam, he's putting himself in harm's way. He invites them to stay with him, relating to them, drinking with them, eyeing the fee that they brought with them, maybe the gold, the jewels, women, whatever it is. He's surrounding himself with it. And God says in verse 12, you shall not go with them. It's as if God pierces his lack of wisdom He doesn't say you should not go. He doesn't say you may not go. He says you shall not go. A strong imperative. He lacks wisdom. He also lacks honesty. Verses 12 through 13. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land for the Lord has refused to let you go with me. You can almost hear the frustration in his voice. Sorry guys. Yahweh won't let me go. He kind of throws God under the bus, doesn't he? You can hear the frustration that God is not allowing him, that God's telling him he should not go. He doesn't tell the whole truth. He's dishonest. He didn't go with them. Why? Because God says these people are blessed. He doesn't tell these servants obey like that. He just says, God won't let me go. He refuses to let me go. And don't you think this nation should know that these people that Balak wants to curse are blessed by Yahweh, the very God that eradicated the nation of the Amorites? Don't you think that Balak should know that? 
Yes. But he doesn't tell him that. He's dishonest. He doesn't tell him the whole truth. And why is he dishonest? Because he's greedy. Many commentators believe that Balaam is, is not telling the whole truth because he's deceptive. He wants more money. He wants more resources. He wants more power. He's entering into a negotiation with Balak. He understands that, that Balak is desperate. He has leverage in this relationship. He wants more services. He's a shrewd negotiator. Peter, referring to Balaam in his, epi- second, in his epistle, second epistle, says this, that Balaam loved the gain for wrongdoing. He loved what Balak was offering him, but he wanted more of it. He wanted more glory. He wanted more money. He wanted more praise. And so he starts this negotiation with Balak. And where does this ultimately lead him? It leads into madness. Lastly, the fruit of intoxication for the glory of this world causes him to be mad. We get this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, the false prophets, as Peter is speaking to them, speaking about them, have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Scripture interprets Scripture. Peter is telling us that Balaam has lost his mind. He's gone mad. Because the shiny and the beautiful things of this world have enticed his heart. What does this madness look like? Well, he's angry. He becomes unhinged. He starts raging at his donkey. He starts beating his donkey three times. And this is not just some donkey he rented. This is a donkey he's had from childhood. The donkey tells him, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long this day? This is, this is a precious animal to him. And he just beats him. He's enraged. He's coming unhinged. Secondly, he doesn't see the supernatural. He's unfazed by the supernatural. He carries on a conversation with a donkey. Let me say that again. He carries on a conversation with a donkey. He doesn't stop to say, what in the world is happening? The donkey starts to speak to him, and he answers the donkey and enters into a conversation with him. He's gone mad. Okay? He's lost all his senses. He's enraged that God is not giving him what he wants. And he's unfazed by this supernatural event that's right before him. And lastly, he's blinded by the glories of this world. He's blind. He can't see this angel. The donkey can, but he can't. He is seeing red. He's enraged. And he can't see what's right in front of him. That's the fruit. As we get intoxicated with the glories of this world, the shiny things, the beautiful things, the reputation, the money, pleasure, all these things, we get intoxicated by them. 
Some of you are listening to uh, a podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. If you're not, I would encourage you to. It's a fascinating podcast, 13 episodes. It's almost over. And it's about a pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll who planted a church in 1996 in Seattle, the most unchurched city in our nation. Planted the church in 1996, and in 2014 it grew to a church of 15,000 people, 15 locations, and in four states. In the very next year, 2000, January 2015, it was gone. Gone. He had resigned under controversy. The church imploded. And there were endless numbers, endless testimonies of trauma, of sadness, of confusion, of anger. Why? Well, I don't want to play armchair psychiatrist, right? But I have to believe it has to do with some of this stuff. As you listen to this podcast, he fell in love with the platform. He fell in love with with the attention and the reputation. And he got drunk on that. He got drunk on his own grapes. And it led him to just madness. He was unwise. He was harmful. And this can happen, and it can happen to me, and it can happen to all of us. As we think about all the things around us that get our attention. So what's the pathway? How do we not succumb to these temptations? Well, we have to look at what truly is glorious. You see, there was another prophet that rode a donkey. And he wasn't intoxicated by the glories of this world. He was intoxicated with love for you and for me. He didn't come desiring glory. He came setting his glory aside. He didn't enter a city in pomp and circumstance. He entered a city in service and humiliation. His life wasn't spared by a speaking donkey. No, he lost his life because of a maddening crowd who said, crucify him, crucify him. There was another prophet who rode a donkey into a city, and his name is Jesus. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter Four tells us this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. John tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he, who, and he has seen His glory, glory as the Father full of grace. How do the bright, shiny things of life grow dim? We look to Jesus, the glory of God, We look straight into his face because it's brighter and it's more glorious than anything in this world. Anything this world can offer you, it is far better. Do you believe that tonight? Can you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look fully in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? How do we walk this journey In a world that's that's tempting. In a world that has all these different lures and baits that are putting out in front of us. A reputation, attention, glory, our bodies, money, comfort. All this stuff is all around us that our hearts are are tempted to latch on to. Our our, our hearts are, are tempted to run after and grab hold to for significance and importance. How do we fight that? We have to look to Jesus. The true prophet 
who rode a donkey, not in power, not in pomp and circumstance, but in humiliation. And that's where we see his glory. The infinite, eternal God, the unbreakable God became breakable. He took on flesh and he lived among us and he went to a cross and he died on a cross, bled out for you and for me. God himself is intoxicated with you. He loves you. He loves me. So much so that it drove him into the grave. But he didn't stay there. He got out. And he rose in glory and is seated in glory right now. And faith this day looks like seeing his face full of glory, fixing our eyes upon him, walking toward him, knowing his word, submitting to his word, orienting our lives around his word, that we might know and see of his glory more and more. Can you say with integrity, you can have all the world, you can have everything, all its promises, all its shiny things, all its reputation, all its power, you can have it all. Just give me Jesus. Can you say that tonight? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you. I thank you for not abandoning us. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I pray by your grace you would reveal the glories and the wonders and the beauty of Jesus that we would not be blind to it as our hearts run headlong into this world for glory for attention, for weight. Would you fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one that is worthy, the only one. And with all other shiny things that we see grow dim and the brightness and the glory of his face. Father, we ask that. I ask that for my life and for all the lives that are present. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.